Well, I do invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3, verse 7 is where we'll begin today. Last week, we looked at the first six verses where Moses and Christ are compared. Christ is worthy of greater glory than Moses. Moses was probably the person closest to God in the Old Testament. He spoke to God face to face. God spoke to him directly. Uh, He was a mediator between God and God's people. But Christ is even greater. Christ is the Son of God. Uh, Moses was pointing to Christ. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews is telling us to consider the greatness of Christ. And we did that last week. Well, today he is now going to compare those who received the teaching of Moses and Christ. So last, in verses 1 through 6, he compared Moses and Christ. Now, in these verses we're looking at today, they're gonna, we're going to compare the followers of Moses and Christ in their respective days. Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us today. Well, yesterday I watched the Auburn-Mississippi State uh, basketball game, and uh, most of you know that uh, I went to Auburn, so I was an Auburn fan, and I was rooting for my Tigers. And Auburn started well in the first half, and they built up a a good lead, but uh, slowly but surely uh, Mississippi State chipped away until right uh, with one second left on the clock at halftime, they hit a three-pointer, and uh, so Mississippi State took the lead right there at the end of the first half, but thankfully the game has two halves, and uh, the second half was kind of went back and forth. There were several lead changers, but Auburn pulled away in the end. Hooray for my team. (laughs) Now, you know, as I said, nobody cares what the score was at halftime now. You know, yesterday I was feeling a little stressed out maybe about it, but... There's two halves to the game. And it's how it finished that matters. And that's true of all sports, but it's also true 
in the Christian life. Making a good beginning is great. You know, coming to faith in Christ or making a profession of faith in Christ is a wonderful thing, but the most important thing is enduring to the end. Jesus said that it's the one who endures to the end that shall be saved. Yeah, we, we rejoice when the Christian life begins, but there's going to be struggles and discouragements along the way. There's, there's going to be temptations and trials for every believer. And the temptation will be to disengage, to drift, to lose our confidence, and to ultimately to give up. But the important thing is to not give up and to finish. He who overcomes will receive the crown of life, Jesus said in the book of Revelation. Now the recipients of this book of the Hebrews, to the Hebrews, were struggling to endure, as we have already seen in uh, the first few chapters. They were tempted to go back to Judaism. And Judaism was legal. Christianity was not. Christianity was persecuted. We'll see in the latter chapters how they were persecuted, had their uh, property confiscated, thrown in prison, and I'm sure faced death as well. So they were going through a difficult time and and they were thinking, you know, it was easier when, when, we were, when we were just following the Jewish faith and not living the Christian life. So they were wanting to give up. And the writer of Hebrews was reminding them here of Psalm 95, 7 through 11, <clears throat> which, oddly enough, he quotes here in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 3. The psalmist is referring here in these first few verses that we're looking at today. He's referring to some events that happened during the Exodus when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt and they were wandering in the desert towards the promised land. Throughout the journey, as you probably all well know, the people grumbled and complained and constantly wanted to return to Egypt and to their life of slavery. And the psalmist, when he's referring to these events, is referring to two particular events. He's first of all referring to Exodus 17. And it says there, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name 
of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So Massah means testing. They tested the Lord. And Meribah means quarreling. They were quarreling with the Lord. And then the other event that he has in mind is Numbers 14. And that's the uh, occasion when they're at the edge of the promised land and they send the 12 spies in to check out the land. And, of course, the spies go and they see that it is a, a wonderful land and they bring back some of the produce even. But 10 of those spies say, but the people living in the land are too great for us. And, and there's giants and there's people that have chariots and we can't do this. And all the people rebel against Moses. They say, you know, you've just brought us here to kill us. They, they decide they want to get a, another leader to replace Moses and Aaron and take them back to Egypt right on the edge of the land that God had promised to give them. And in response to Moses' intercession on their behalf, because God said, I'm just going to destroy this people altogether, and we'll start over with you, Moses. And Moses says, oh, no, you don't want to do that, Lord, because then the Egyptians will think they have won. They, they'll, they'll look down upon the fact that you've rescued them, and, and it, it will be all for naught. And so God refrained from wiping the whole nation out by a plague, but he said, All those men that have seen my glory and my signs, which I wrought in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have tempted me these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, neither shall any of them that despise me see it. So therefore, instead of invading the promised land at that point, they remained in the neighborhood of Kadesh Barnea, 38 years until that generation died out. And then the second generation entered the promised land. All of that generation except two people, Joshua and Caleb, the spies who gave back a good report and said, yes, the Lord will be with us. We can take the land. They trusted the Lord. They trusted his word. And they wanted to move forward. But the other people wanted to give up. They wanted to go back to Egypt back to slavery. See, the, the psalmist in Psalm 95 is reminding his generation of these events, and he's saying, look, let's worship the Lord, let's come before the Lord and worship, but let's do so with faith, not with hard hearts. Let's trust the Lord. Don't turn away from the Lord. And now the writer of Hebrews is telling his people about Psalm 95 and reminding this, his readers of the same thing. Look at verse 15. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? See, they made a good start. They left Egypt with Moses. They were on the journey, but, but they hardened their hearts and rebelled. And the, the writer of Hebrews is bringing some comparisons between the, the people of Israel and the visible church. When we talk about the visible church, we're talking about people who have made a public profession of faith. They're professing the faith. That's a good place to start, a profession of faith. We've confessed our faith today. 
using the Nicene Creed earlier. But it's one thing to say that you have faith, but it's another thing to have true faith in your heart. These people on the Exodus had hard hearts. They were part of the visible people of God. They had left Egypt, but their hearts were far from the Lord. And when, the thing, when things got tough, they didn't endure to the end. They rebelled against the Lord. See, we can make a profession of faith. We can say all the right things. You can appear before the elders. You can become a member of the church because we're human beings. We go on what you tell us. If you want to join the church, the, the first thing you have to do is make a credible profession of faith. We must believe that you're making a true profession of faith. We can only go on your words. We can't see your heart. See? So it's great to make a profession, but you've got to endure in the walk, in the Christian life. And these people to whom the writer of Hebrews is writing were tempted to throw it all to the side. Look at verse 17. With and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, sinned, whose body fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his arrest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. See, their, their sin and their disobedience were a product of their unbelief. They did not trust the Lord. They did not say, okay, look, the Lord split open the Red Sea, he wiped out Pharaoh's army, and he delivered us miraculously. He has given us his law. He has provided manna and water and quail, and he has done one thing after another for us, and yet they're still saying, oh, the Lord has just brought us out here to kill us. And then they get to the edge of the land that he's promised to give them, and they say, we want to go back to Egypt. We want to quit. We want to give up. See, they did not trust the Lord and therefore it led to sin, disobedience, and a rebellion and rejection, a rebellion against and rejection of the Lord. What does our lives look like? Are our lives filled with sin and disobedience? That indicates a heart of unbelief, a heart that is growing harder to the Lord. This is a somber warning and really is a wake-up call for us all here today. And those middle verses are what I want to focus on here for just a few minutes because he gives us three, three verses, 12, 13, and 14, Three exhortations for us. Number one, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, the writer of Hebrews is in the same position that we, when the session is, when you know, these people were making a profession of faith. And they had exhibited signs that they had true faith. And, but now they're, they're, they're getting shaky. They're thinking, well, maybe this isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Maybe, we, maybe it would be better if we just went back to the old ways. 
So he's issuing this warning. Take care, brothers. Take care of your heart. See, a heart can become evil and unbelieving. And you can turn away from the living God. This, this doesn't mean they lose salvation, that they're truly saved and they lose salvation. That's not what it means. It, it means that they have made a profession and they need to keep on enduring in that profession. Keep trusting the Lord. But they're not trusting the Lord. They don't think that the Lord is going to take care of them. They don't think the Lord is going to deliver on all of his promises. Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. We often lean on our own understanding, our own interpretation of the events going around us, and we're likely to say when things go wrong, well, God doesn't love me. God doesn't care for me. God is, God is mad at me. And we're leaning on our own understanding. The truth of the matter is the Lord says, I hold you in my hand and no one can snatch, snatch you away. Don't worry about all these other things. I'll provide for you. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. Proverbs goes on, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. We need to increase our faith. Trust in the Lord. Trust the Lord. What would your life look like if you read the Scriptures and said, you know, how can I put this in practice? Even though I may not want to, I don't know if it'll work, I'm not sure how it will be received, but I just said, okay, Jesus said it, I'm going to do it. Trusting the Lord. Our lives would look a lot different if we trusted in the Lord. We wouldn't be so quick to run to sin and disobedience if we trusted the Lord. Well, how do you trust the Lord? You know, I, I'm not just sitting here telling you, okay, you've got to whip up some faith in your, in your heart. You've got you to try harder. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm, I want to go back to verse 1. What is, what is the writer of Hebrews telling these people to do? Verse 1. Holy bro Therefore, holy, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. You know, what, do we, what can we do to increase our faith? That is... Consider Jesus. Look at Jesus. Remember who Jesus is and, and all of his promises and all that he did for our salvation, all that he has promised for our future and hope. Dwell upon that. Sink down deep into it and draw from it. And as you taste and see that the Lord is good, it will increase your faith. Run to Jesus is how you take care of your heart. Not just try harder. There has to be some effort to that, yes. You've got to pick up your scriptures. You've got to come to church. You've got to, point two, exhort one another daily. You need fellowship. Let's look at that one. Verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You can't do this on your own. You need other brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside and exhort you and encourage you and to bear you up when it's difficult, and to bond together. And if you look at the front of our bulletin, there are three words, and uh, if you 
read the newsletter, I've explained it a little bit more. Uh, so if you haven't read the newsletter, there's a plug for Diane Bowden's hard work, and uh, you can uh, look there and see what the uh, full explanation of worship, fellowship, and mission. This really is the, uh, the, the statement of purpose for our church. Primarily, we're about worship. The most important activity we have in the church each week is what we're doing right now, Sunday morning worship. And, uh, and then we also are here for fellowship. We're here to bond together with brothers and sisters and encourage one another in the faith. But we're also on a mission. We all have gifts to use that God has given us so we can encourage one another and reach out into the community so that, that the Lord might build his kingdom. So worship, fellowship, and mission, that's what we're all about. But it's also, um, there's a movement there. You can come to church once a week and worship, but are you also involved in fellowship? That's a little deeper commitment to get connected to the other people sitting in the pews next to you, to be involved in a small group or a prayer group or just to know someone else that's helping you walk through the Christian life here that you sit with week in and week out. So worship, fellowship, and then finally, mission. Am I just coming and soaking things up? Or am I helping others? Am I reaching out to others? So there's kind of a growth there. Worship, fellowship, and mission. Are we doing those three things? Mature Christians do all three. So we need that fellowship So to exhort one another. Ephesians 4 says that in the church that various gifts have been given so that we can minister to one another to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. We need that so we can grow to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are to grow up in every way into him who is head, into Christ. So the, the subject matter of what we're talking to one another about in fellowship should be Jesus. We should be talking about Jesus and, and having a relationship with Jesus and and, and having a relationship with other people in the church who have a relationship with Jesus, and we're all talking about Jesus and loving Jesus and growing in our appreciation for Jesus because he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's the one that we must consider. So that's how we keep from being these people who are on the exodus, who want to turn back, or these Hebrews who are wanting to go back to the old ways. How we can keep from going back to the world. We need to take care of our hearts, to center them on Christ, to exhort one another. We need brothers and sisters. And finally, hold our confidence to the end. Verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Jesus told a parable of the soils. Uh, the sower went out to sow and the seed fell on four different types of soil. It fell on the path, the hard path, uh, and the birds came and snatched the seed away. These are people that, you know, the, just the, the word, the, the gospel goes in one ear and out the other. makes has no effect on their life whatsoever. But the second one, uh, the, the seed that is sown on rocky ground, that's who these people were that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. They had received the word with joy. And it said... They had no root in themselves. They endure for a while. 
Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. That's where it looked like they were going. That they were enduring this tribulation, this persecution, and, uh, and they were starting to wither. They were starting to lose their faith. And the writer of Hebrews, look what he's doing. He's saying, take your roots and get them down into Jesus. Sink them down into Christ and consider him. And then draw your strength from him. That's where they are. And that's why he's encouraging them with these warnings. Jesus also talked about the third type of soil, that sown among the thorns. Now, we sitting here today are not under persecution. That day may come if the trends continue along their current path. People in other parts of the world are facing death for their faith. So, no, we don't have that type of persecution, obviously. We're more like these people in the third type of soil, the thorny soil. Those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. That's our temptation. You know, we don't endure because the world has uh, allured us away. You know, Jeff Foxworthy made a living telling uh, redneck jokes. And, uh, you know, you might be a redneck if... One of the things that he said is that uh, rednecks like shiny things. And he said that's why a bass boat has a glitter finish, but a yacht does not. You know, the world has shiny things. And I'm not calling everybody a redneck, but, you know, even though it may fit. Uh, it fits me. But... The world has its temptations, and the world has a version of the good life it's trying to sell us. You need this, you need to be like this, you need to own these things, and, and that's the good life. Jesus has a different definition of the good life, and it looks nothing like the world's definition. And we need to pay attention to his definition of the good life, because sin in the world makes promises it cannot keep. And Jesus always keeps his promises. He will, he will always keep his promises. And we can trust him. May we prove fruitful like those who's, where the word was sown on the good soil. Hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Thirtyfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. That's what we want to be like. And it comes by putting our trust in the Lord and not giving in to an unbelieving heart, but truly trusting in him. C.H. Spurgeon wrote a, wrote a book uh, entitled the, the Soul Winner. And um, <clears throat> he writes this, Do not, therefore, consider that soul winning is or can be secured by the multiplication of baptisms and the swelling of the size of your church. What mean these dispatches from the battlefield? Quote, last night 14 souls were under conviction, 15 were justified, and 8 received full sanctification, unquote. I am weary of this public bragging, this counting of unhatched chickens, this exhibition of doubtful spoils. Lay aside such numberings of the people, such idle pretense of certifying in half a minute that which will need the testing of a lifetime. So what Spurgeon is saying is, you know, we, maybe you have a revival meeting and, 
And uh, many people respond. And he's saying, yeah, that's, that's fine, that's great. But it's he that endures to the end that will be saved. How many of those people will make it to the end? We get them in the door, but are we going to walk with them to the end? That's what he's exhorting there. And that just reiterates the point that we must endure. We must endure, and to endure, we need to sink our roots deep into Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would yield uh, a hundredfold in fruit. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to be allured away from you by the shiny objects of sin and temptation and the good life that is described by the world, but we pray that we would cling to your word, trust in you with all of our heart, not lean on our own understanding or be wise in our own eyes, but like a toddler who's not quite sure on his feet yet, just continuously reaching up, holding your hand, reaching out to you to bear us up. And we pray that you would. And Lord, if anyone does not know you today, I pray that they would, that they would make a good start and put their trust in you. I pray that your spirit would work in them and that you would irresistibly draw them by your grace and bring them into your kingdom so that they might produce fruit for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.